Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 29. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately and with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. So we've been looking at the life of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. And in this morning, we come to this crazy passage in Mark chapter 6. It's charged with both intensity but also tragedy. I mean, Kelsey just read it for us, and it's a weird text, right? Like, it's got pride, it's got murder, it's got incest, it's got scandal. But when you actually dig into this intense text, we find an important message for all of us. An important and relevant message for all of us in this text. In fact, this is the only place in the entire book, in the entire Gospel of Mark, where the focus is actually not Jesus specifically. This is the only place in all the gospel of Mark where the focus is not Jesus. Right here in chapter 6, verse 14, Mark breaks away from the Jesus story, and he starts to tell us these vivid details about somebody else. He tells us the story of another king, a king named Herod Antipas. And Mark is trying to say to us with this this sort of side story, hey, don't be like Herod. Don't be like Herod. You see, the big idea that we've been unpacking throughout the Gospel of Mark since we started this series earlier this year is that Jesus is the king to end all kings. He's the king who ends all kings. He is the servant king, the king who leaves his throne and exchanges it eventually for a cross. This is the good news that we've seen again and again from different angles through the Gospel of Mark. And here, in verse 14, Mark draws our attention 
away from the Jesus story to a different king. He sort of juxtaposes the, the story of King Jesus with this story of a wannabe king, Herod. He contrasts the triumphant story of King Jesus with the tragic story of wannabe King Herod. And so Mark's big lesson for us this morning, the big lesson for us uh, that Mark gives us is, is don't be like this guy. Don't be like this guy. Don't let Herod's tragic story be your tragic story. And so let's dive in. I want us to learn three things from this passage of Scripture. First, we're going to look at how the kingdom of God challenges. Secondly, we're going to see how the kingdom of self, it destroys. And lastly, we're going to look at how the king of the cross, Jesus, he is unstoppable. And so the king of God, kingdom of God challenges, the kingdom of self destroys, and then the king of the cross, Jesus, is unstoppable. Let's look at that first one. The kingdom of God challenges. Start in verse 14 with me. Mark chapter 6, verse 14 says, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Now, what is it that he heard of? What is this it that he heard of? You remember the verses right before this are sort of the big turning point in, uh, because the disciples of Jesus, uh, his followers, will, are no longer passive witnesses to the work of the kingdom. In the, in the verses before this, we see that they're no longer passive workers of the work of the kingdom, but they're sent by Jesus to be active participants in the work of the kingdom. Jesus, for the first time, starts sending his disciples out to teach on his behalf, to perform miracles on his behalf. You see, before that, it was all him doing these things. And then in, in earlier in Mark chapter 6, he sends out his disciples. So this is sort of a big turning point to be active participants in the work of the kingdom. And really, that's a mission that every follower of Jesus throughout history is sort of drafted into. And the historic purpose of our mission, as we see there in verse 14, is to make Jesus known. That's what the disciples were sent to do. They were first to know Jesus, and now they're sent to make him known. Those of us who are followers of Jesus in this room, we know Jesus and we make him known. That's our mission. And so word is spreading about Jesus in the region, about the power of Jesus' preaching and his miracles and his disciples. Rumors are flying around about his identity. People are like, who is Jesus really? Who's this guy doing all these things, saying all these things, performing all these miracles? Who is Jesus? Is he a prophet? Is he Elijah? I want you to read about that in verse 14 with me. Halfway through, as we continue, it says, Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Verse 15, But others said, He is Elijah. And others said, He is a prophet, like one of the, the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. So here we see everyone has an opinion on who Jesus is. This mystery miracle man. Everyone wants to know who he is and everyone's got an opinion. But Herod is convinced that John the Baptist is back from the dead to haunt him. And that's what a guilty conscience does, doesn't it? That's what a guilty conscience does. It's like that old classic tragedy Macbeth by Shakespeare. You guys have heard of that? 
the classic tragedy Macbeth. I mean, the, Macbeth is a play that gets, it gets parodied a lot in pop culture, and so you might be already familiar with it, but, but basically the main point of the story is it's about the psychological effects of a guilty conscience. And in the play's most famous scene, you've got one of the main characters, Lady Macbeth, this woman who plotted with her husband to murder the king of Scotland, and she starts sleepwalking. She starts sleepwalking in this one scene. And while she's sleepwalking, she just goes totally nuts. And she's rubbing her hands like vigorously in an attempt to cleanse herself from what she calls this damned spot. And she says, out, damned spot, out. She's trying to rub her, her hands. She goes, she goes to town on this blood stain on her hand that's really in her dreams, in her sleepwalking. It's just a figment of her imagination. Her guilt has driven her insane. That crimson stain that we just sung about is haunting her. And that's a lot like Herod, where in verse 16 it says, that when Herod heard of it, when he heard about Jesus, he said, that's got to be John. That's got to be John, who I killed, who I beheaded. He's raised. You see, Herod is going nuts here. He's saying, I killed John the Baptist, but now he's back. And he's back with more power. Now, why would, why would Herod go there? Why is it that Herod would, would make this assumption, drawing this connection between uh, John the Baptist, who, who he decapitated, and Jesus, who's out starting a revolution? The reason he drew that connection is because both of these men came declaring a message. They were both declaring the same message, a message of repentance. You know what repentance is? Repentance is essentially a change of both, both heart and mind. That's what a repentance is. It's a change of heart and mind that impacts the way then that you live. It's an acknowledgement that in the light of the holiness and the goodness of God, that we are sinful and that that is a problem. And so repentance is turning from, from choosing sin to choosing God by grace through faith. That's what repentance is. And that's what John the Baptist's message was. He went around preaching repentance. And that was Jesus' message too. He said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. You see, when John started his ministry, when he started his career as a prophet, his, his, his career as a prophet kind of started out great. When John the Baptist was preaching, people flocked to hear him preach this message of repentance, to get baptized by him in the river, which, by the way, is why we call him John the Baptist. It had nothing to do with his denomination, right? Because he baptized people. It probably would be more helpful for, for that reason for us to call him John the Baptizer. He's the one who baptized. And one of the unique things about John the Baptizer and also Jesus is how they would call everybody to, to, they would call everyone to turn to God, no matter who they were. And so look, it doesn't matter if you're great in reputation or lowly, you need to turn to God. It doesn't matter if you're irreligious on the outskirts of society or if you're one of the religious elites. You still have to repent and turn back to God. John showed no partiality. He called everyone to repentance. 
And now in verse 14, Mark does a flashback to show how John the Baptist actually lost his head by preaching this message of repentance to Herod specifically. This is where things start to get more crazy. Look at verse 17 with me. It says, this is the flashback. It says, for it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him, against John, and wanted to put him to death. Now, here's what you need to know about Herod. Herod's, the family name Herod's, they actually come from a long family line of thugs. They're sort of like the first century Roman equivalent of like the mafia. All right, And so this Herod, uh, that's his background. He basically meets up with his other mafia brother, Philip, and Philip's wife, Herodias, one time in Rome. So they had a sort of a small little family reunion. And history actually tells us that the woman, Herodias, was also the daughter of their other half-brother. So you're tracking here? This girl is his, both his sister-in-law and his niece-ish, right? And while, so that's how awkward this is. And while he's at this family reunion in Rome, Herod Antipas decides that he wants to take his brother's wife home with him. And so he does just that. And she lets him. She prefers Herod over Philip. You thought Michael Bluth's family was jacked up, right? Like imagine how awkward their family reunions were. Like imagine Thanksgiving, imagine Father's Day, right? So Philip's been a weird year, right? (laughs) Kind of awkward. And just for the record, stealing your brother's wife was not kosher, right? It was was considered unlawful to the Jews. And so John the baptizer calls him out. He calls Herod out and he says, Herod, you need to come down to the river and stand before God. You need to give up this scandalous relationship. You married your brother's wife, and you, so you need to repent. You need to get baptized. You need to wash this filth away from you. That's what he says essentially in verse 18. I want you to notice John gets really specific in his call to repentance here. He gets specific in what he's calling Herod to repent of. Men. We don't like that, right? Look, this is usually a deal breaker for people. This is usually a deal breaker for people on whether or not they want to participate in church life, whether or not they want to be a follower, a genuine follower of Jesus. You see, most of us, most people are okay with general statements like, hey, we all need to live lives marked by repentance, right? Most of us feel generally comfortable by that. When we make general statements like, hey, we're all sinners and we need to stop sinning. But when things get specific, like when we move beyond the general, stop sinning to the more specific, hey, you need to stop getting drunk every other night. You need to stop abusing alcohol. You need to stop sleeping with that person that you're not married to. We need to stop visiting that website at 1 a.m. in the morning. Then we start to go like, whoa, dude. You can't just start naming my sin like that. You, You can't judge me. You can't throw your religious rules on me. You see, John the baptizer, he wasn't being 
like religiously legalistic. He was just saying to Herod, hey, look, this sin is getting in the way of you truly knowing God. This sin of yours is getting in the way of you experiencing how really good and how truly satisfying God really is. He was out for Herod's good. He wanted God's best for this man. But you see, getting called out on specific sin is exactly why Herodias wanted to take John out and why Herod had him thrown in prison. You see, the truth of the gospel will set you free. It will liberate you. It will bring you joy in that liberation, but it will first, it's going to make you uncomfortable. The gospel will make you uncomfortable before it frees you. You see, the gospel is bad news before it is good news. The bad news is that, look, you're screwed up. You need to repent. You need to turn to Jesus. You need a savior. Most people can't take that message because it challenges us. It confronts us and it makes us uncomfortable in our own skin. But that is the message that we need to hear. It's like when a doctor tells you that you have this life-threatening disease. Nobody wants to hear that. Nobody wants to hear that. But if it's true, if you're dying, if that's true of you, then you need to hear that. If you're like, man, if, I, if I'm dying right now because of this disease that I have, and I'm unaware of that, then tell me, right? I want to know that. What wouldn't be helpful is if the doctor sat you down and said, hey, what do you want to hear? Right? What would you like me to do for you? It's like, no, dude, you give me the diagnosis. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm visiting this clinic. You tell me what I need. You see, the gospel of God's kingdom, it confronts us and it challenges us because it causes you to think about yourself in ways that you don't like to admit. And look, I understand that that's not a popular thing to receive. That's not a comfortable thing to receive. It's not a popular thing to say. But we need to understand just the, the, the truth of that statement that life is ultimately not about you. That you are not the center of the universe. That's why it makes us uncomfortable, because we like to think that we are. But you're not the center. You don't get to write the rules. And the gospel teaches you that you are self-centered, that you are jacked up, that you are stained by sinfulness, and that your biggest problem in life exists not outside of you, but inside of you a sinful condition that is destructive, that destroys and will lead to death apart from the grace of God. You see, the gospel teaches us that you can't do anything about your condition apart from the personal saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want you to ask this morning, what is a specific area of your life where you sense the Spirit of God calling you to repentance? What is one area of your life that the kingdom of God is challenging, is confronting, where you want to live under the goodness of his kingship, where you have to give it up in order to follow faithfully? It leads us to our second point, 
which is that the kingdom of self destroys. The kingdom of self destroys. Verse 20 is a fascinating verse on this point in this passage. Read it with me, but start, let's start in verse 19. It says, Herodias, she had a grudge against John and wanted to put him to death. But she could not. Why? Because verse 20 tells us, For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and so Herod kept him safe. And when he heard John, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Now, this is an amazing set of verses right here because there's a lot of tension, right? Like Herod's here one moment, and then he's there one moment. There's a lot of tension here. John the baptizer has been calling out Herod in his sin specifically, but Herod is keeping him safe. John the baptizer is calling out sin, calling out Herod's sin, but Herod is keeping him safe from his crazy murderous wife. Why would he do that? Because on the one hand, Herod actually liked this guy. See, on the one hand, this text tells us, Herod considered John to be a holy and righteous man. There was something in John's message that sort of warmed Herod's heart. But there was also something that that sort of repulsed him. We talked about this two weeks ago, didn't we? We talked about how if you're faithfully following Jesus, your life and your words will at times sort of draw people in, but will at other times drive people away. And that's why verse 20, it says that Herod was perplexed. That word perplexed, it's a Greek word, apareo, which really uh, literally means in its original context to be paralyzed by indecision. To be completely paralyzed by indecision. To, to not know, do, do I, should I stay or should I go? Do I go in or do I stay out? Do I go down this road or do I stay off of it? That's Herod. He's divided. His heart's divided. At times, he wants to get on the road of repentance that John the baptizer has been calling him to. But at other times, he's just afraid to go there. He's afraid to go there because what would it look like if he actually repented? What would it mean for his position in the kingdom? What would it mean for his relationship with Herodias? You see, Herod heard John preach again and again, and again. But he never actually boarded the repentance train. He never actually boarded the repentance train to get on the track of following Jesus himself. He was attracted by the message, but he never actually acted on it. Herod was attracted by the message, but he never acted on it. And look, maybe for some of you, that's you this morning. Maybe, maybe that's you. Maybe you're not a follower of Jesus. You're not, you're not truly following Jesus. You're like, you're coming to church, and in a very real way, you find yourself sort of attracted by the message, but you've never actually acted on the good news. You like the way the gospel stimulates your intellect, but you're unwilling to surrender with your life. And if that's you, If that's you, if you haven't turned from your sin and embraced the good news of God's grace in Jesus, then you need to understand that you don't stand in a neutral place there. That is not a neutral place to stand. If that's you, you stand opposed to God. You stand opposed to God. You're rejecting his kingship. You're rejecting his lordship. But you can turn. 
You can repent. You can turn now and become his fully to learn to embrace all that he is, all that God is in his goodness, in his truth, in his beauty. You want to know why Herod didn't respond to the message of repentance? Why didn't Herod respond to, the, to John's message, his call to repent? The invitation to turn to the truth, goodness, and beauty of God. You see, the reason that, that, that Herod didn't respond is the same reason that some of us don't respond. The reason he didn't act is the same reason that some of us don't act, in it and act on it, and it's that we want to stay in control. We want to stay in control. I want you to see how destructive that is as that unfolds. Begin, look at verse 21 with me. It says, an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for all his nobles and his military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. So Herod's hosting this massive guys night with the first century mafia and it says an opportunity came. An opportunity came for whom? For Herodias, his wife. An opportunity came for Herodias. You see, she sees this birthday party and thinks, this is my window of opportunity. And the tragic irony with that is that when Herodias' opportunity opened to out John the baptizer, when Herodias' opportunity opened, Herod's closed. You see, Herod, he was listening to John preach the gospel again and again and again. Herod was hearing the message of repentance again and again and again. And we're told he was perplexed. He lived in tension. He was processing. He was thinking it through. He never made the decision. He was indecisive. But then in comes Herodias on the other hand. On the other hand and she made a decision that would end John the baptizer's life and ministry. And look what happens next. Verse 22. It says, so she, she sent in her daughter. It says, when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And so I want, in the middle of this sort of wild party, Herodias sends her daughter in to do a dance for Herod and his guests, all these men. And the way it describes her in the original language, she's probably just, her age is she's just a vulnerable teenager. The word please there is used exactly in the way that it sounds. It's a sexually charged word. And the whole scene is just gross and nuts. Like, just imagine this. Actually, don't imagine the scene. I why would I want you to do that? <laughs> it's just, it's gross. It's nuts. It's perverse. And the guys here, like, they've all probably had more to eat and drink than they should have. And at one point, Herod himself is so filled with lust by his stepdaughter's dancing. I mean, talk about depravity. That he says to her, look at verse 22. He says, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. Now, the other great irony here I want you to know is that Herod did not have a kingdom to give away. He wasn't even a king in a true sense of that word. They called him King Herod almost in jest, almost because that's what he wanted. He was actually what's called a tetrarch appointed by Rome. 
Rome was the one in charge. Rome was the one who owned the land. And so here, Herod is acting like he actually has a kingdom. He's acting like he's a real king. He's bragging here. He's just spewing out his bragging rights that he doesn't even have. The kingdom wasn't even his to give away. And look at what happens next in verse 24. It says, Then she went out, the little girl went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And her mother responds and says, The head of John the Baptist. And so she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And so... This scene is nuts, right? Like Herodias is seizing her opportunity here to get rid of John. She's seizing her opportunity here. Verse 19 told us that she had this grudge against him and has wanted to take him out for a while. And so she hated him because she loved her sin. She hated John so much because she loved her own sin with Herod. So she asked for his head. And because her daughter's just a gem, her daughter says, Give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. I mean, her mom didn't even request that. She just added that fun little detail. Give me John the Baptist's head on a platter. Verse 26, the king was exceedingly, what does it say? Sorry. He was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. You see, there's a difference, 2 Corinthians tells us, between godly grief and worldly grief. Godly grief leads to repentance, but worldly grief leads to destruction. The king was exceedingly sorry. He was exceedingly grieved. But at the end of the day, he wanted to please man and not God. Verse 27 tells us, Immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. Question. Does this hairy guy sound like a guy who is in control? Does this sound like a guy with true power and true control? No. Herod is a slave. He's a slave to his pride. He's a slave to his passions. He is so hell-bent on keeping the image of power and control that he ironically will do whatever others ask of him to maintain his image. You see, the big idea that you don't want to miss is that if anything but Jesus Christ is the center of your life, like if you have any other source of self-worth and self-esteem than the love of God through Jesus Christ, then you are not free. You're a slave to that thing. You're in bondage to that thing. You can try and talk yourself into, I'm living my own life. No, you're not. That thing owns you. Only Christ can truly liberate you from that. You see, that is no control at all. That is slavery. And in these verses, we see that Herod is at his moral sort of rock bottom. He can't do whatever he wants. He doesn't even want to kill John the baptizer. We saw that in verse 20. But he felt the pressure to from all these people, and so he, he caved. You see, before this, Herod was 
The word was perplexed. He was perplexed, wavering back and forth as he heard the call to repentance day after day. He was considering it. He considered the invitation again and again and again as John preached to him. But in this decisive moment where he let somebody else decide for him because of his pride, because of his love of his own image, in this moment, a slave to his own sin, to his own self-centeredness, he caved. And they cut John's head off, and the little girl walks it over to her mom on a serving platter. This is the tragedy of the story. The tragedy isn't so much what happened to John the baptizer. He got to die for his Lord. The tragedy is what happened to Herod Antipas. That is the tragedy. I was reading an article not too long ago, uh, the Christian magazine, and about, um, I was telling the story of, uh, it was recounting uh, this, 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 this interview um, with uh, J.R. Tolkien, the author of the, the Lord of the Rings. Um, you guys heard of Lord of the Rings, right? <laughs> you may have heard of it. Uh, so Lord of the Rings is this, this massive, uh, if you don't know, like they're books, right? <laughs> so they're books first, and they're massive books, uh, the Lord of the Rings. And in this interview, uh, Tolkien is talking about uh, one of his favorite, most moving moments in the entire trilogy that he wrote. And he talks about Gollum, uh, you know, that, that trollish little little creature who used to be a man named Smeagol. And then Gollum slowly gets, gets, gets taken over by his desire uh, for, for his, his precious, his ring, right? And, and there's this one scene where, where Gollum has kind of seemingly tricked Frodo and Sam the man, right? And they're like passed out and, and, and there's a spider creature that's got them all webbed up, is about to eat them and Gollum's like, he's, he's gonna leave them for the beast. He's gonna leave them for the spiderly beast. He's gonna take off with the ring and run. And if you've seen the movies, and this explains it in the books too, that, that when, 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 when Gollum is his worst self, his eyes are green. But when his, his old sort of humanity kicks in, when he starts to have empathy and sympathy, his eyes change color. I think in the movies they're, they're blue, right? Uh, and there's this, this moment uh, in this scene when he basically leaves these two hobbits to be eaten by this creature. He's stolen the ring from them and he's about to take off. And his eyes flash blue and he starts to experience remorse. He starts to experience sort of this, this, this tension. He's, we might say, perplexed. And then, in the flash of an instant, his eyes flash green again. And then in the book, it describes this moment, and it says that fleeting moment had passed beyond recall. That fleeting moment where he was living in that tension between humility and pride, between other-centeredness and self-centeredness, had passed beyond recall. And the rest is downhill for him from there. And Tolkien, in this interview, just writes about how every time, I mean, he wrote the story, but every time he gets to that part when he's reading that, he's so moved to tears because of the tragedy of Gollum's story. You see, that is what happened to Herod in this moment. That is why this is such a tragedy for him. 
we all like to think that we have control over our hearts, but we don't. In a moment's notice, Herod's sin took over, and he never looked back. He was never perplexed again. He was hell-bent on sin and destruction for the rest of his life. And when John's head was severed, Herod's own conscience was seared. I'm reminded of this, this old famous warning from the Puritan John Owen when he says, he challenges us and says, do you make fighting sin your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Is there something that you can think of that you need to kill? Some, some sin that has been at your door that you need to mortify, that you need to kill. Is there something that you can think of where, like Herod, you've been just putting this decision off? You've been living in that tension, sometimes attracted by Jesus, other times repelled by him because of this thing that you love and you're so just hanging on to. Some decision you need to act on, but you've been putting it off. Remember, Mark is writing about Herod so that we can learn from his mistakes, so that Herod's tragedy does not become our tragedy. Which leads us to the good news in point number three that the king of the cross is unstoppable. The king of the cross is unstoppable. Read verse 29 with me. It says, when his disciples, this is John's disciples, heard of it, they came and they took John's body and they laid it in a tomb. And there you have the story of John completed. You see, John's death pointed forward to another. He prepared, John prepared the way for another righteous man. Another righteous man who would also be brought to the death of a criminal. The death of another, he would be, this would be a death of another leader who was innocent. That would be the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus would not die for his own crimes, but for ours. And a few years later, a few years after this text that we just read about uh, in, in, in Mark chapter 6, a few years after this, after all of this, on the night that Jesus was arrested, right before he's crucified, the authorities send Jesus to Herod. The authorities send Jesus on the night that he's going to be crucified to Herod, the Herod that we just read about, this Herod. And Herod, at that moment, we read about later, is excited because he thinks Jesus was some type of magician. So he went from thinking that Jesus was John, come, to, come back to haunt him. He went from having like this fearful respect and reverence for who Jesus was to all of a sudden thinking, thinking that Jesus was just some common man with parlor tricks. You see, his depravity, his, his, his opinion of, of, of God, of, of, of Jesus, and, and Jesus' people just deteriorated more and more over time because of that one decisive moment. He gets excited thinking, uh, 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 when Jesus is about to get uh, crucified, Herod gets excited thinking, you know, like, like he's about to meet David Copperfield to entertain his guests. And so he gets a small crowd together and waits for Jesus to arrive. 
And when Jesus arrives at the end of his life before Herod, he refuses to perform any miracles. And so Herod and his soldiers, they mock him. And they beat him to a bloody pulp. You see, after many opportunities to repent from John's message, Herod now stood with a heart as hard as stone, mocking and beating the only one who could save him from his impending self-destruction. Herod missed the point of John's preaching. John the baptizer's primary message, the way that he primarily lived his life, John said, I must decrease so that Jesus can increase. Even on the day of his own gruesome death, John's death pointed forward to Jesus. And when John the baptizer died, his disciples buried him. But when Jesus died, his disciples deserted him. You see, Jesus experienced a death even more brutal than John's. He experienced death in its fullest. He was mocked. He was beaten. He was deserted by his closest friends. He had the face of the Father turned away. He died alone so that sinners like you and me can be made clean from our sin so we could have true life to walk in. So we would never be alone. So we'd have a deep family of faith with a perfect father as our head. You see, the root of sin's destructiveness is that it says, I will find a substitute for God. But the root of salvation is God substitutes himself for us. You see, Jesus' death brought life, brought new life, brought lasting life. His sacrifice wasn't the end of his ministry in Galilee, but it was the beginning of his ministry to the world and throughout history. And that is why on today, we worship today in 2018 because of his work on the cross we worship on Sundays because it's the day that Jesus rose, securing his triumphant victory over the sin that he defeated on that cross. And those of us who have repented of our sin and who have turned to God through Jesus Christ get to now walk in lives of repentance following him, away from the lies that we tell ourselves and to the truth and the goodness and the beauty of God through Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.